Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are, and you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review, follow it, wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on, for the third time, my friend, Jerome Neymar. Jerome, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing great. Great to have you on. Your own. I should have said it. He's the founder of One Man Capital. Good friend. I think he's a super smart guy. Always happy to have him on. Uh, just before we start talking, your own, let me just give everyone the, the disclaimer I give at the start of every podcast. Nothing on this podcast is investing advice. That's always true, but particularly true today. We're going to be talking about uh, Limbach, which is a sub 250 million market cap company. You know, Obviously, at that size, at that scale, at that liquidity, a little bit of added risk. So everybody should just remember that. And please keep in mind, not investing advice, doing your own diligence, do your own work, all that type of stuff. But speaking of do your own work, I know your own has done tons of work on this company. You followed these guys for what, four or five years, something like that. I, I can remember talking to you about them in 2020. You've gotten out, you've gotten back in, but I, I, we can talk about all that, but I'll, I'll pause there and just say, you know, Limbach, LMB, what is Limbach and why are they so interesting today? Yeah. So uh, I've actually been following them since they came public via SPAC. So like all the I, I remember all the, do your own, all the do your own diligence, not investment advice, like layer on the fact that this came public via SPAC in 2016. Um, so I, I remember the early SPAC mafia in 2016, 2017, where it was all over Limbach and the Limbach warrants. And yep. I, I remember those days. Yeah. And, and by the way, those warrants, like, you know, they were down, you know, all the way through the fourth quarter. And with two minutes left in the fourth, they came back and went from being out of the well out of the money and never going to have any value to now having value. So anyone who owned the Warrens has done really well. But yeah, I've, I followed it since 2016 from afar. They came public. They're a mechanical system solution uh, engineering company. They focus on uh, HVAC systems, but they do some other mechanical stuff as well. Um, and uh, they focus on the HVAC systems, mostly in commercial buildings. Um, and you know, historically, when they came public, they came public uh, mostly selling new construction work through general contractors. Um, and the thesis was you can roll up this industry at very low valuations, you know, call it four times EBITDA and grow this thing, get some geographic diversity, customer uh, diversity, and, uh, and create a lot of value through acquisitive, accretive M&A. Um, and, uh, you know, selling work through general contractors is a, is a, pretty bad business. It, it's, you know, these are long lead time projects where you're installing HVAC systems and new, uh, new construction projects. You have to quote and, and bid, at, bid on the work. And then it's, you know, it could be a multi-year project where you're relying on other parts of the construction to be completed when they're expected to before you could start your part. In the meantime, you're like engineering it, prefabricating it in your facility. You're spending money. You're not getting paid yet. So you're building up inventory and, and, and receivables, basically. So it's very working capital intensive. And in the meantime, you could have like cost inflation, but you're on, you already gave a fixed price. 
So you could get underwater and the projects could have delays and overruns on, you know, not only, not only costs, but also time, time is money. And so like you, the, the variability in the margin profile of work through the general contractors is just, is, is high variability. It's low margins, just a bad business. And, um, and the company kind of blew up a few times on guidance where they gave guidance, um, you know, they um, missed guidance and had to guide down significantly because of this general contractor work. And so like, it wasn't a good SPAC, you know, roll up. They, they weren't able to do acquisitions because obviously they had capital issues uh, due to these blowups and, you know, investors got frustrated and it kind of became an orphan stock. Um, I got involved for the first time as a special situation investment in 2020. Uh, when during COVID, obviously HVAC systems became very important for hospitals, for lots of buildings, because everyone was worried about COVID. They got some government work, they got a lot of hospital work, uh, but the stock had traded down, you know, they had some debt, the stock had traded down to distress levels. Um, and, you know, I think it was sub $3 and the warrants were in the pennies. And um, it became very clear that they were not going to be distressed because this work was coming on and uh, they were protecting margins. They, they were able to take some costs out of the business. And so I got involved in 2020 as kind of a special situation, did really well on it in 2020 and was planning on holding it for this transformation into what it is becoming today, which is selling less through general contractors and more directly to building owners, less new construction, more maintenance, service work, small upgrades to your systems, right? HVAC systems are probably the biggest source of, or the biggest use of electricity in, in buildings. So there, if, if you have an efficient HVAC system, you could save a lot on your electric bills, you become more ESG friendly, and you could do work uh, you know, for building owners to help reduce their energy costs, make them more ESG friendly, make their systems more reliable, especially if, you're, if you have mission critical infrastructure like uh, data centers, hospitals, biotech uh, research facilities, you can't really have your HVAC system go out at 2 a.m. on a Saturday and wait until 9 a.m. on a Monday to get it fixed. So if you have mission critical stuff and you're a trusted service provider to, you know, if, if Limbaugh could become a trusted service provider to these building owners with mission critical infrastructure, they could start doing more service work, uh, which is not only much higher margin, it's less working capital intensive because shorter projects, you do the work, you get paid right away, you don't build up inventory and receivables. And you don't you don't get stuck with these cost overruns and just variability margin. So it's higher margin, more predictable margin, uh, lower capital intensity. It's just a better business. And so while I made a lot of money, kind of on the trade, the special situation trade of this, this is not going bankrupt right now. It's a going concern. It got revalued. I still thought there's another huge opportunity of transitioning the business more towards owner direct work. And then continuing using the cash that the business is now throwing off because uh, it's more predictable to roll up the industry at really attractive multiples, right? You could do acquisitions here at four to five times EBITDA, uh, which is a really attractive, you know, for business with no almost no CapEx, that's attract an attractive acquisition multiple. In the meantime, you're diversifying the business through acquisition, you're getting bigger and a more diversified, larger business would be worthy of a higher multiple. So not only would you be making the business more predictable and growing earnings and free cash flow per share, organically and via acquisition, but you would probably command a higher multiple in the future. And this was trading really cheap still. Um, you know, I got a little frustrated with a few things that management did, um, in particular, an equity raise they did, which, um, you know, the, the way they did it and the, and the amount they raised, it just, um, I, I think they, they, you know, they, they pissed off a lot of their shareholders, including me. 
um, I decided it wasn't an investment for me anymore. It was just, you know, it was a trade that I did well on that I gave back some of the gains on and I exited the position. But I, you know, I kept following it on, on trades where you make a lot of money, especially you kind of have an affinity for the company and you want to you want to see what goes on with them and you're curious. And so um, I kept following the company. They replaced the CEO earlier this year. Um, and I, you know, I made it an investment. I think it became an investment once again for me, not just a trade. And um, yeah, I've been in it since uh, January in size. And uh, you know, I think since they came public, they've taken their owner direct gross profit mix from you know a third. It used to be two thirds general contractor, a third owner direct. And today it's the opposite. It's it's two thirds. Uh, owner direct a third general contractor. So the mix has improved. Their EBITDA margins have doubled from like three and a half percent, you know, when they came public to about 7% today. I think over time, the opportunity is to take it to a low teens EBITDA margin as they continue mixing the business and doing some M&A. So I think there's lots of room for the margins to continue to expand. The stock is still very cheap relative to comps. Uh, you know, it trades at a single digit free cash flow multiple, six times EBITDA net cash balance sheet. And so they're going to be able to do a lot of M&A. It's getting added into the Russell now. So there's going to be some passive buying. So there's just a lot of great angles here. Um, it's becoming a better business, a larger business. And so uh, excited to talk to you about it today. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Well, look, I think you you just hit everything about it. We can probably wrap the podcast up here, but I'll, I'll try and earn my keep. I guess the first thing, so I look at this business and, you know, They've got the, as you said, they've got the old general contractor business, which they're trying to kind of move away towards the owner direct piece. And yes. it makes sense. I agree, right? The owner direct piece, uh, less inventory, less cost overrun risk. You've got that direct relationship, as you said. And I think they actually give the example on their calls. They say, hey, you know, this is a business where something breaks Saturday, 2 a.m. You're not going to wait till Monday. I guess my first piece is, okay, it, it sounds really nice, but, you know, everybody says they want to transition into a better business. Like to me, it does seem like, this is a business like mom and pop down the street can try to do it. Maybe like a one person shop can't because you can't be on call 24 seven all the time. But what what is their edge in kind of transitioning to this versus, you know, the the hundreds of HVAC owner repairers in New York or Chicago or wherever they're competing? What what is kind of their edge that lets them do this? Yeah. So Limbach tends to not operate in these big primary markets. You know, they had an LA. LA I, I saw they, they closed the LA they down. Closed, and they they closed in LA. Yeah. They, you know, they, they tend to be in these secondary tertiary markets that still have growing populations and, and good economies. Um, but where they could be kind of the, the number one, number two player in those local markets. They've been around for a hundred plus years. They're trusted within their local markets. And I think um, developing a relationship with building owners giving them advice, showing up at their, at their location uh, and, and just saying, hey, 
you know, let's work on a plan together to help improve your energy costs, to help make sure we can extend the life of your equipment. And when you're ready to do a new project, we can be there and quote it for you. And, and, and I think holding their hands and becoming a more trusted kind of consultant to the building owners is what makes them a better business over time. You know, the OEs also do this a little bit. The OEs, um, it's not really their primary business. Their primary business is to sell new equipment, not yep. to help extend the life of equipment. And so um, I think if you're focusing on doing the right thing for these building owners, instead of just trying to sell them this expensive equipment, I think you can become a trusted kind of partner to these. To you know, it does remind me of, and, and this, I was, it was like percolating in the back of my mind, but I, I didn't get in my notes. But now that you said, like, if you look at it, if you ever look at an elevator manufacturer, what is it? It's like uh, Tyson Krupp or whoever, like yeah. the best part of their business. Yes, they sell the elevator, but that's not actually where the money is made. Now, elevators are different than HVACs, but it's the elevator. All their money is made on, they get like a 20 year service contract on the elevator. And that is money, good revenue, right? Nobody's going to stop paying to maintain their elevator. So that's where all of their profit is made. And as you said, an HVAC system, like you sell it, but you're going to sell hundreds and thousands of those HVAC systems and you probably can't service them all. So it is probably going to these guys. Especially, so I do hear especially you on in secondary that. markets, right? Where you might not have a lot of density of your service network. Yep. Um, and uh, and yeah, it, you know, even if your primary focus is the HVAC system, it's not necessarily to come and be like, how can we save you money? How can we extend the life of this? Um, and when you're ready for a CapEx project, how can we be, you know, the guy that you want to go to? So a lot of their, you know, even new construction work now, their, tr their customers that are building these, these relationships with them are going to the general contractor and, and saying, hey, we want you to use Limbach or the HVAC portion of this new project, which obviously allows them to price uh, at a tra more attractive margins for that business as well. Let me just ask this in a different way. So part of the story is, right, they trade for six times EBITDA and, and maybe eight or nine times free cash flow. And we, we can talk about multiples and peer comparisons in a second. But part of the story is that they're pitching that you're thinking of is we're going to grow through acquisitions. And I always really struggle with growth through acquisition stories because it, it does rely on, right? Like, hey, if we're going to grow on acquisitions, well, we're assuming you're going to grow profitably through acquisitions. And it kind of assumes that the sellers are going to give you a deal when you to, to grow profitably. And there's two ways you can do that. A, you know, you think about classic M&A where there's just massive synergies, cost synergies, right? I, I buy the station next door. We can fire all of our all of their accounting teams. If it's a TV station, we can get better retrains on cable stations. That's not really the case here. You know, I, I was looking at their their last merger call, and they were really clear. Hey, I think the quote was, "There are limited cost synergies here." They were like one or two, but it's not about cost synergies. They were talking all, all about, "Hey, we're going to use this for to find some revenue driven." I, the quote I have is front-end revenue-driven sales, business development, marketing synergies, which I, I don't even know that what that is. But I do worry. It's like, hey, this trades for 6X. They want to go buy stuff for 4X and create value. But why are the sellers selling for 4X? Why is that going to create value if there's not really these cost synergies here? Yeah. So um, for one, I think these kind of, the, the businesses they're buying are just small businesses. And that's, that, that tends to be the market price, right? If you're getting closer to retirement, um, and you don't have a kid who wants to take over your business and you want to shop your business at this scale, not just in this industry, but in lots of industries, businesses trade for lower multiples when they're smaller. Um, and, and this business specifically gets, the, gets lumped in with these construction related assets that people are generally more skeptical of, right? What does the seller know? There's variability in margins here. People tend to be scared of these types of assets. I think 
Um, you know, LMB has shown an ability to, you know, with, with one acquisition since they've come public, but it's been a very successful acquisition to buy an asset um, and um, be the right steward, kind of the Berkshire Hathaway. If you're a seller and you, you care about it, right, you're not going to, you're, you're, the seller is, is kind of, if they've built this business for a long time and they have a relationship with their employees, they don't want to sell I, it to someone. It, it does sound business. silly. Like it, you and I are sitting here in like one man shops, you know, it's just my podcast, me. And I'll, I think Penny's behind me. Penny's behind me for people yeah. on the video, but you know, I don't have any place. But as you said, if you're a seller, you're selling your business, you built it for 30 years. You've got guys who've been with you five, 10, 15, 20 years. You do care about if you're selling to a private equity firm who's going to fire your best friend or the guy whose kids you've seen grown up, or if you're going to sell to Limbach who says, Hey, it's going to be mainly business as usual. Maybe we even improve the business. Like that yeah, so stuff think, does matter. Improving the business is by uh, implementing best practices, how to maintain and develop these relationships with building owners and help grow this owner direct type work um, so that you can, you know, say, say no to construction work that isn't priced to margins that are appropriate and just improve your business mix such that gross margins, you know, mix higher. This business used to do a consolidated low double digit, call it 10% gross margins. And now it's it's over 20% gross margins. I think you could probably get it into the high 20s or low 30s over time as you continue mixing the business. Even within the owner direct work, there's two types of, of, of kind of projects. There's within owner direct, there's more CapEx oriented projects and more OpEx oriented projects, you know, more maintenance related stuff. Um, consulting related stuff. And, and within the owner direct, you know, owner direct is already kind of two, two and a half X, the, the margin profile of, of uh, the general contractor margins. But within that, the operating expense stuff is even higher gross margin than the CapEx stuff. And so as you continue mixing the business towards owner direct, at, which you could do with acquisitions as well. And as you continue mixing it within owner direct to the higher service, higher value add stuff, which there's a lot of corporate know-how, right? That you can kind of implement best practices and send them to, to your local markets. That improves the business. And, right, a single business, by definition, is just let... It, we, we, when we spoke about RCI, we talked about this as well. I think a single business just has less geographic uh, diversification, less customer diversification. And so it's, it's just worth less. It's, it's a riskier cash flow stream than when it's owned by a parent that has natural diversification within it. it, it I, I'm laughing because RCI was actually the next thing I was going to mention. And yes, it had that. But the other thing is, and this is kind of not common because I know some of your other investments and it, not all of them have this, but RCI in this, and I think it's something you look for, Look, they're small enough where they can go buy those mom and pops that might trade for two to four turns cheaper than you know the small private equity owned business. They're small enough where they can buy those and that budgets the needle. And they both also have some, I'll call acquisition here, where like your traditional private equity players might not want to play in that space. I mean, obviously, our Rick's with, you know, not many investment committees are okay in strip club purchases these days, but Limbach, smaller, touches construction, uh, you know, on the GC side, they've got costs over unrest. They're obviously trying to switch more to the uh, maintenance type contracts, which, you know, everybody wants those, but it's still got the construction. It's still smaller. It's still macro exposed, quote unquote. It is something that I can see a lot of private equity firms just instantly vomiting on themselves and passing instead of really wanting to, especially at this size. Yeah. And that, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're ever going to buy anything for four times EBITDA, you're talking about with, with, for a business with minimal CapEx, which this business does, you're talking about a 25% pre-tax uh, return on your investment unlevered. Um, you, have to, you have to start asking yourself, why am I able to get that? And if you can get it for a reason that makes sense to you, 
that you're generating excess returns without taking on excess risk. I think it's an interesting situation. The, be the best situation is when you could buy into the platform at a low valuation that can then deploy its cash flow at those attractive valuations, because then you can get a double whammy of the accretion, the earnings growth, the free cash flow per share growth from deploying your capital into those acquisitions, and the benefit of getting multiple expansion on the platform over time as it scales and as people get more comfortable with it. And that's how you end up with an RCI going from $15 a share to $75 or $80 a share. And that's how you end up with LMB, you know, going from, you know, $3 when it was in 2020, but low double digits earlier this year, I really believe this could be a $75, $89 stock in a, in a handful of years. Um, and some of that is through earnings growth and some of that is through multiple expansion, of course. Let me let me ask one more on these kind of like maintenance contracts or, you know, the, hey, we're going to have you on call to come repair the, the AC at two in the morning or something. Is that also something that a mom and pop, it's tough to say this because Limbeck is not really acquiring in markets. So they're not getting, they're going and entering new markets, but is that something that mom and pop might have more trouble offering than like kind of a corporate with that corporate knowledge? Or is Limbeck generally going and buying mom and pops that already have those maintenance contracts in place? Does that make sense as a question? Yeah. I mean, okay. uh, if you have multiple employees, it's, it's generally easier to be available all the time for sure. Yeah. Um, and you have the ability to take on multiple projects at once, right? If you have multiple customers who have issues and you have the ability to service a single customer in multiple markets, uh, right? HCA, which is a customer, Hospital Corporations of America, which is a, a customer of LMB, like they trust them and they're using them in many markets at once. A, a mom and pop can't offer that. Um, there, I'm sure there's some purchasing, uh, uh, obviously, uh, synergies from having scale. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's mostly just being trusted, having your operating history there and uh, having a staff that can support, you know, customers with multiple locations. Let me just data center. So, you know, we, we've mentioned a few times hospitals, data centers. These are things that 2 a.m. on a Saturday, HVAC breaks. They, Disney, they need to... NASA, you know, yeah, stuff like that. Just data centers were the one I wanted to think because these are big things, you know, they are generally... They're really big. They're making a lot of money. Why Why couldn't they have like a, why do they need to outsource this? I guess is my question. Why don't they have one person who's handling all operations and internally anything that goes down 24 seven, they can fix it. I just think, I think their utilization would be too low. I think it's, yeah. it, I think their utilization would be too low. It ends up costing them more than having someone who's focused on this 24 seven, who has all the expertise, the engineering expertise, the prefabrication, the on-site the ability to, you know, source whatever, whatever materials are needed to fix something instead of having all the inventory. Like if you own a data center, what are you going to have? You're just going to carry inventory for repairs on site and have one person who might not be doing any work at a certain time. Right? If, if you want someone sitting there at 3 a.m. ready to take your call who's dedicated to your facility, that's going to cost you money all the time. Every, every night at 3 a.m., you're paying for that person to be available. With LMB, it's not every night. It's as needed, but they're available. Is there a way to measure local market share? Uh, I don't think so. I don't I was just, yeah. Let me ask you, I'll ask you a separate question, then I'll come back to that. When LMB has this, we're on call 24-7, you call us, we'll come. They're not getting a retainer fee, are they? They're only getting paid no. when something breaks. No, they're, they're, they're ingraining themselves in the building owner's right phone, phone book for when, when work comes up, they're the trusted guy who gets the work. And, and, so, and so the owner is just less price sensitive in that environment, right? Yeah. Now, if you're if you're trying to extract way too much value for yourself, if you're bidding 
you know, two X the price of someone else, I don't think the owner will have that loyalty to you, but that's not the case here. You can provide good service and charge a little bit more and still do much better. See, it does, it does seem to me like something where, as you said, if you're in a secondary or third market where you could get economies of scale, like, Hey, everyone works with us because as you said, you need somebody on call 24 seven. You can only do that with a huge book of business, especially on weekends and late nights and stuff. So we can get there and our customers, you know, it's Uber surge pricing, right? Your HVAC breaks at 2 a.m. on a Saturday. You can pay us 5X the regular right now, or you can wait till Monday and we can send someone out there. And I, I do think like that is something there's probably what? in a secondary market, 200 people who need 24 seven coverage of their thing, you know, because a house does not need 24 seven coverage. Even if my yeah. AC broke, I, I, it would be an emergency to me. But if there's 200 people in a secondary market. Like that's really only enough to support one person paying four people, you know, to cover a whole week or something. So it does seem like there could be, hey, we have 100% market share in these third markets. We're the only player. We have two people on call at all times. So we can always service people. It, yeah. I would I guess, know. I would guess the market share for owners of infrastructure mission critical infrastructure within markets, uh, I would guess the market share is pretty high for LMB within, within their local market. So, um, you know, I've asked them recently, I'm like, hey, if office buildings are, are troubled, is that going to impact your business? And they're like, offices aren't really the kind of mission critical infrastructure asset you would think of that needs to have their HVAC fixed at 2 a.m. on a Saturday. We, have, we don't have a lot of office exposure in our portfolio. So again, it's stuff like the data centers, hospitals, stuff like that. And, and yeah, I think within that core customer base, I think their market share, my, my guess, my intuition is their market share is pretty high within their local market. I, I'm just, you said offices, uh, they're not our customers. I was just laughing because my WeWork, the air conditioner would be broken at it, I'd say two out of every five days. So I can guarantee they weren't too urgent about having the air conditioners <laughs> fixed. Let me ask, the office building discussion though is a nice transition to, hey, I got three DMs. I think two people on the Twitter thread said it, it probably the most popular question, right? People see Limbach and they think, oh, a lot of the business is still GC general contracting type stuff, macro recession, commercial real estate recession, all that type of stuff. Top of mind, first question everyone asks. So how do you think about if we have soft landing, hard landing, whatever the landing we're going to have is, how do you think how that impacts Limbach? Yeah, I mean, first of all, their end markets tend to be less economically sensitive, right? If you're talking about you know higher education, um, not that economically sensitive, healthcare, not that economically sensitive data centers. We're about to have a surge in data center spend. Um, I liked when you uh, you and I were talking or chatting the other day, and you said self self AI play Limbach. Yeah, somebody's exactly. got to service those data centers. I was I was actually someone messaged me that, and I was like, oh, that's funny. So I like I I, I tweeted it, and then and then some people thought I was being serious about an AI play, and they called me an idiot. But like you um, weren't being serious, but you kind of were. Yeah, kind of, kind of, not really. Um, I I just think generally they're they're you know. The end markets that they play in tend to be less economically sensitive. Um, there's a lot of, from the last few years, there's a lot of deferred CapEx and these systems don't last forever. So there's going to be an eventual kind of deferred replacement cycle. In the meantime, you know, we could still be there helping people extend the life of their existing equipment, uh, improve the operating efficiency of it, which has an immediate payback, right? That's not a spend money now just, to, just for status quo. It's a spend money now. And, you know, I was having lunch with the CEO a few weeks ago, and he was like, listen, we're still, we're still going into some of our customers. And at first, they don't want to share our util their utility bills with us, right? They, for some reason, there's just a trust component where it's like, why should we be sharing our, our utility bills with you? 
but more and more of them are starting to share utility bills with LMB and LMB is going back to them with a, with a plan of action on how you can actually have an immediate payback on spend today. That's going to reduce your, 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 you know, your cost of operating your facilities immediately. And so um, there's, I think there's a lot of stuff like that where they could kind of win near term projects and then position themselves well for the longer term CapEx investment as well. Um, you know, th there's, um, MCOR comfort systems, if you listen to their earnings calls, you look at their earnings results, they're not seeing any slowdown. They're super optimistic about, about kind of what their customers are telling them they're seeing. And same with LMB. I mean, if you talk to management and you ask them how things are going, they, it's, they, they seem to see no, no end in sight in terms of the amount of um, continued growth they, they expect to get out of owner direct. Business has been really strong. I think it's continuing to be really strong. And of course, look, if we go into like a 2008-like recession, um, where everyone just has to cut spend on everything, OPEX, CAPEX, and just delay, 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 and, and not even do immediate payback stuff, then every business gets hurt. But the nice thing here is we're sitting on a net cash balance sheet at a low valuation. We'll be cash generative in that environment as well. And we'll be able to do acquisitions at you know more attractive terms than we're even doing than that today. So um, you kind of have a natural hedge when you're sitting on a net cash position with a business that is now cash generative and should be continuously cash generative because of this owner direct type work that they position themselves to, to take on. Um, I think you're kind of hedged. If things get bad, you can deploy capital more creatively. If things are good, obviously your operating business continues to perform well. Can you just, uh, two more questions, because I am really interested in this business. The first is, uh, you, we've mentioned several times, hey, you, they can do work that makes your building more efficient and you get a payback, right? And the, the classic would be you you take an old HVAC and you install a new HVAC and the new HVAC uses less energy. It's much more eco-efficient, all that type of stuff. I, I understand that example, but are there any others? Because I guess just if the, I'm sure there are, but if the way they make things more efficient is, hey, we're just going to install a new HVAC, that's more the HVAC unit that's doing the uh, the efficiency improvements. Yeah, I don't think it's a new HVAC. I think it's, I think it's improving the existing HVAC. Um, and I think every building is different. They see the bill, they go inspect the equipment. They see if there's part of the equipment that could be replaced, not the, not all the equipment. They could see if there's, if there's leakage, right. Of cooling or heating that's causing the bill to be higher than what it should be for a building of this size. And then you could address that. I think there's lots of different things they could look at. Um, and that's where they come in and become a trusted kind of partner to the building owners. Last one. And then I want to move on to valuation, a few other things, you know, just, the example we gave earlier where Limbat comes and I'm getting ready to retire, they buy my business for four times EBITDA, and I'm sure they keep me on for a year or two to make sure the transition goes smooth and stuff, right? But this is in part a knowledge business. And let's say I retire and you were my general manager, right? Like, it, how do they keep, I guess, how do they keep you instead of you going off and starting, hey, Andrew was my buddy, he retired some corporate overlord owns the business now. Why don't I just take all my people and go start my own competitor down the road? You know, like the classic, because they, they are trying to get into what is more consulting type work. And that yeah. has been the issue with a lot of these smaller consulting firms. If a private equity guy buys them, all the mid-tier people leave once the top tier people are done and they go and start their own company. Yeah, I think compensating a whole team of these skilled professionals, especially in, in today's world where it's a tight labor market, it would be a big upfront investment for whoever's trying to kind of, you know, steal that team out of the acquired asset. Um, and, uh, and then you have to, you know, you have to, if you build it, they will come in and hope the customers actually come with you, but the customers 
you know, a lot of them have a loyalty at, at that point to the business that's been serving them for a, a long period of time. So you have to kind of invest a lot, try to get the whole team and then try to win over the customers. I think it's, 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 it's easier said than done. Um, they haven't done a bunch of these acquisitions. So like, I can't say go look at their history and, you know, proof is in the pudding, but that's kind of my intuition. The, the one they did at the end of 2021, was it James? Jake something? Marshall. Yeah. It seems like that's gone pretty well. Yeah. It's gone really well. Yeah. Uh, there were two earnout um, uh, thresholds where I think they needed to generate like 8 million gross profit uh, in 2022 and then 10 million in 2023 to make both earnouts. And I think they're on track to hit both earnouts. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's gone really well. If they could do more acquisitions like that, I think it'd be great. Let's quickly talk valuation. So uh, we've said a few times the company trades at kind of uh, six times EBITDA, eight or nine times free cash flow. You know, EBITDA doesn't. It, it it's funny because it has some big addbacks, but they're actually addbacks that you'd be okay with, except for they do have some restructuring charges in there. But we we can talk restructuring charges if you, you want later. I guess the, my overall question was, how do you think about valuing this business? Because you've mentioned they've got some peers that trade at kind of two x the multiple that they do, right? Low double digits, but those peers are also. 10, 20, 30 times bigger than Limbag. So I, I think people might say, hey, it, you're you're comparing a tiny almond to a giant orange or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's I, IESC also, which is not that much larger that also- I, I haven't looked at that one in a while. I remember that when, uh, it, who was it? The guy who had the, the best stock of you know, the uh, past yeah. 20 years- Gandel or something, or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Pontine like oh. Capital, I think it, his fund was. Ooh, that's done really well recently. It's done really well. And what's what's the EBITDA multiple on that? I think it's low double digits also, right? You know, I haven't looked at it in the wild. They actually had one division that was really struggling, struggling that dragged down their entire EBITDA outlook. And it, I think they put it behind them. But yeah, that it, I've got it trading at eight or nine times trailing EBITDA, I think. Got it. Um yeah, I thought it, would, it got into the low double digit EBITDA multiple, but you know that's another one that's it's not that much bigger than Limbach. Um, I think uh, you know the, the point is you build scale here, you build the diversification, the cash flow stream becomes smooth, you know, less volatile, and and it's going to grow into a higher multiple. I don't think it's going to get that higher multiple overnight, but I just think with scale, um, you know, the blowups are behind them. Hopefully, I I, I really believe the blowups are behind us. Um, especially since we've exited some of the troubled markets like LA uh, and we've moved the business more towards this, these smaller ticket, less working capital intensive, shorter duration projects that are just higher margin and with more visibility and less variability. So I think the blowouts are, are behind us, consistent operating results, um, diversification through M&A, accretion through M&A. I think you naturally gain the, the trust of the market. And uh, you know, if a business can grow its free cash flow per share, at a really attractive rate, I think eventually it's rewarded. You know, without without doing anything that's too risky, like taking on a lot of leverage um, or doing things that are illegal or something like that, I think eventually it's rewarded with a nice free cash flow multiple. So, um, but yes. looking at a, looking at a few years, like I don't think it's crazy to think this trades at twelve or fifteen times free cash flow, right? Like I just don't think those are crazy. I'm not, I'm not arguing for a twenty times free cash flow multiple here, but uh, I think a lot of free cash flow per share growth through continued margin expansion, through acquisition, and then you get a little bit of multiple expansion and that's how you end up with a home run result. So would I be putting words in your mouth if I kind of said, look, right now it trades for six times EBITDA and you kind of think it should trade for, let's call it eight to nine times EBITDA, which would get you into the very low double digits, free cash flow multiple, plus maybe slap an extra EBITDA turn multiple on for it to account for future accretive acquisitions done at a 
low multiple as you discussed because you're buying mom and pops and all that would would that sound about right as a framework to you yeah i think that sounds right i mean i think um you know they could probably probably so it depends which ebitda number you're looking at if you just take this last quarter where they did almost 9 million of ebitda and annualize that you're looking at 36 million of ebitda on a run rate basis the first quarter is a seasonally slower quarter for the company historically and so i would think they probably do higher than 36 this year, even though that would be higher than their guidance. Um, and I think organically, they could probably take it to 60 from 36 over the next four or five years, just through continuing to mix the business towards owner direct and getting some operating leverage. And I think it really depends how much M&A you think they could do. They're going to generate a lot of cash. Now, if you think they could redeploy all that cash into M&A, then they're going to grow free cash flow per share really quickly because M&A is super accretive. If they can't find enough attractive acquisition targets such that they either build cash on the balance sheet or have to buy back stock at 10 times free cash flow or whatever, then obviously that's that's much less accretive. But um, you know, the way I model the business is continue to mix the business towards owner direct, um, redeploy all their free cash flow into acquisitions, but I have the acquisition multiples increasing over time because they need to put more money to work. So they probably have to pay up a little more to, to just get more, more deal volume. Um, and I have free cash flow per share growing from like 250 ish this year um, to over $7 by 2027. And so call it, you know, three, four years out. Um, and if they could actually grow from 250 to seven, I don't think it's crazy to think this trades at 85. It's certainly, as you and I were talking, it's trading uh, about $23 per share. If it's got $7 of free cash flow, I don't know, in today's market, maybe, you know, there <laughs> there are some things that, but let me ask a, another question on M&A. So uh, we already kind of talked about the synergies and everything, but it, I guess the other question on M&A is, can they do M&A? And what I mean by this is they did the, the Jake Marshall deal in late 2021. That deal has been great. And that was a, a pretty nice size deal. But they didn't do any M&A in 2022. We're six months into 2023 at this point, and I don't believe they've done any M&A unless I missed a press release or something. But so that's 18 months since their last deal. And we're talking here about, you know, I'm questioning you, can they do a creative M&A? How do they make it a creative? You're building out models that they do a creative M&A. There's not a lot of proof in the pudding that they can do M&A. And I know they're asked about this on every call, but like, when are they going to do M&A? Are they really going to be able to grow creatively through this? Because as you said, look, this is, it's not like you're really paying a lot for future creative growth. You're not paying anything for a platform, but there's going to be a difference between if they can do consistent accretive M&A or if they just kind of limp along and have to pay out dividends and buy back stock, which I love, but that makes a big difference, especially at this size. Yeah. I mean, look, I think without M&A, my kind of back of the envelope math says, this business is worth around 35 today at probably like not 10 times EBITDA, but eight, eight or nine times EBITDA, it's worth 35 today. Um, I think they can grow the value of that 35 today organically just by continuing to grow their owner direct part of their business, which would allow them to get higher margins and better free cash flow conversion. So I think you could do well. Like I think there's a without doing MA, there's a credible path to getting the stock to. In the, into the 40s, I would say, over the next few years. So like a double. Um, I believe they could do M&A. They have um, someone dedicated full-time looking at acquisitions, Matt Katz. Um, he's been with this business a long time. He's looking at a lot of opportunities. He's a very he's in evaluating acquisition targets. He's very disciplined. And the new CEO, uh, Mike McCann, is also very disciplined. I don't think they're in a rush just to do deals just 
to tell investors they did a deal. I think they're looking for the right cultural fit in the right market at the right valuation. And I think they're willing to be patient. The pipeline sounds big and they're looking at a lot of things. I think they were really close on a few things and they, they, they turned them down and, you know, towards the end of, of the deal processes because um, they were trying to be disciplined buyers. And I think that's a good, that should be a good sign to investors who, you know, have been burned in the past by this company, which came public via SPAC, which had to take down guidance a bunch and did some things that kind of, you know, just destroyed over a short period of time, their reputation with investors, they're trying to regain the credibility and they want to do good deals, good cultures, good valuations, good end markets. And I think it sounds like there's lots of things in the pipeline. Um, you know, I think they've said that they're hopeful to do one or two deals a year. Um, obviously, we're sitting here in June and they haven't done any yet. So like, can they do two in the back half? I don't know. Could they do one in the back half? I would hope at least one. Um, but I, th I think they'll get a few deals done, you know, every year, maybe not this year, but every year going forward, the pipeline continues to grow. As you know, like with, when we discussed RCI, like when you become a known buyer, you can develop a big pipeline, but you can't force people to transact. People transact when they're ready, right? When they're getting older, they're ready to retire. They're, they might be fearful of a downturn. So they might be more inclined to sell right ahead of the downturn. Right now, things are really good in the industry, right? We just talked about how uh, MCOR and Comfort Systems uh, and Limbach and I, IESC, like their stock charts are up and to the right. Their businesses are doing well. Um, and, you know, and, and I think you sit there and you develop those relationships as a buyer. And when people are ready to transact, you're hopefully the buyer of choice. I think they'll be able to put capital to work. It's hard for me to, to say timing, just like with RCI, it's hard to say timing, but I think they'll be able to. Let me ask one more way. So, you know, just looking at the company, starting in 2021, you see a ton of insider buying when the stock is in the single digits. You know, I'm looking at in March and May, 2022, Michael McCann, who was the CEO at the time, now he's the CEO, who I think you like a bunch and who's done a really nice job. He buys several, probably about $50,000 worth of shares in the six to $7 range. And there's a, a board member, Josh Horowitz, who I don't know, but who runs a fund. Do you know him? Have you talked to him at all? I haven't spoken to him. I, I don't know. Maybe I've this will make his way changes. to. I've had some email exchanges, but no, I haven't spoken to him. Maybe this will make his way to him, and I'll, I'll just tell him, you know, come on the podcast if you're running a small cap fund. It's ridiculous to have somebody running a small cap fund who hasn't. But you know, he he does some pretty consistent buying throughout last year with the stock in the six to nine dollar range. If I'm looking at these buyings, right? And that's not to say it can't be a deal here, but it it does strike me like. Hey, last year the insiders are buying pretty aggressively in the single digits, and now they've all got two, three, four baggers on their hands, which is a nice problem to have. But it does strike me that they're not buying shares right now. Do you do you kind of read anything into that signal? Like maybe it was really cheap last year, and now they just kind of look and say, okay, yeah, it's it's fine, you know? Yeah, I mean, at at six bucks, you were looking at a sixty million dollar market cap on a business that we just said I think it could do up close to forty million of EBITDA this year. So it was just it was a broken spac. With a you know a, the CEO running it, I think was having a hard time attracting new investors into the story, given the guide downs and the way they did the equity raise in 2021. I think a lot more people now are willing to kind of look at the story. And I think if you were an insider and you had the opportunity to buy at six, you bought everything you wanted to buy because you knew how silly it was. I, I think you're kind of you know you're topped up. I don't think you need to keep buying the whole way up, but I don't think you're going to be you're you're going to see aggressive selling in the 20s is my guess. I have no idea. It's not like they've shared their plans with me, but you've uh, mentioned the equity issuance they did in 2021. And, and I, it like tickles the back of my brain. I think I remember you saying something to me at the time, but I didn't really research it for this podcast. What was wrong with the equity issuance they did in 2021? 
So um, during COVID, like we talked about, the stock went to people thought, you know, this might be a distressed company. Yep. Um, stock went to three bucks. Then it was clear that it was not going to be a distressed company. They were generating some cash. They still had some debt, uh, but the stock was up to, I don't know, eight, nine bucks. And, um, you know, I think they started evaluating an equity raise around that time. I, I caught wind of it. Um, I wasn't, you know, approached by a bank or anything, but I caught wind of it. Uh, or I suspected it. No one told me Limbaugh's going to do an equity raise, but someone told me, hey, a company you're interested in uh, is looking to potentially raise some capital. Like I told the banker, the banker should really reach out to you to talk to you about this oh. opportunity. And I, you know, I, I suspected it might be Limbaugh, but um, so I, I reached out to the company and I was like, hey, I, th I think you guys might be trying to do an equity raise. Like, and they're, you know, the initial response from the first person I reached out to was, you know, I can't, no comment. I can't discuss this with you. So I reached out to, the CEO um, and and one of the board members and I got on the phone with the CEO and explained to him for like an hour why I thought raising at eight dollars uh, unless there was something about the business that I didn't know that's that led the CEO to believe the business would be in distress without an equity raise like of course if, if you have to do an equity raise to save the business do what you have to do but if you're viewing this as an opportunistic raise because the stock just tripled off the lows I think it would send a very bad signal. The stock's still very cheap, low single digit EBITDA multiple. And, um, and, and you know, the, the, the message the CEO gave me was, I, I hear you. I appreciate this, this feedback. Um, let me just, you know, let me, let me think about it, discuss it internally and, and we'll figure some, we'll, you know, we'll decide what we do. Um, and uh, that was in like October, November, November-ish of 2020. Um, you know, then, a few weeks pass, no raise. I'm like, okay, good. I talked some sense into them. Hopefully some other investors talked some sense into them. And uh, in December, they go to a conference. They're talking about how great the business is. In January, they go to another conference talking about how great the business is. This is all the former CEO talking about how great the business is and, um, and saying he can't wait to report Q4 results, like implying the business is crushing it. And at that point, you know, the stock's still really cheap, 30, 35 million of EBITDA. You were still looking at 8 million shares outstanding. It was like a hundred and something million dollar market cap. So you're still looking at a stock that's like three or four times EBITDA. Um, stock got up to 15 bucks. People were excited. Um, and then one day, I think it was after the close, all of a sudden an AK comes out. They're doing an equity raise. It's already been priced. The stock, the company had 8 million shares outstanding before this raise. And they were raising, they were selling 2 million shares. Jesus. And so this was all primary? This was all primary, 2 million shares. Um, all to new investors. They went and wall crossed new investors. They didn't contact any existing investors and they priced the, the offering at $12 a share. So the stock closed at fit around 15. They, they, with 8 million shares outstanding, they sold another 2 million shares. So 2 million on a base of 8 million. Is like a you know twenty five percent increase in your share count, um, and everyone gets diluted by twenty percent at three times EBITDA, and no one has the opportunity to participate in their pro rata share if you've been supportive of this company and been a shareholder for a long time. So um, you know I sold most of this. They priced it I think around twelve. Stock opened up maybe thirteen or something like that. I sold a big chunk of the position, um, and then there were a few other things that you know frustrated me and I ended up selling out of the rest of the position and getting out entirely. Um, and uh, you know, I think it 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 blew my mind that they were willing to do an equity raise. Well, first of all, that they, you know, 
the initial one, I thought that they had decided not to do, but then they go and like talk up the stock and then do an equity saying things are great. And then you do an equity raise, which implies maybe things weren't as great because you really need cash. Um, and you only go to new shareholders. Like I probably would have, if I thought there was a good use of the cash, I probably would have bought stock at a higher price than 12 to support the company. Um, and uh, instead, I think they just, you know, they destroyed their credibility with investors. Uh, again, after coming public via SPAC, after missing earnings a few times with these big uh, project blowups, and then doing that, I think there were lots of people who look at small caps that are institutional long onlys who would not take a look at this no matter how cheap it was. It is just funny. It, it, just two things from that story. A, it's funny. They went public as a SPAC in 2016, right? And I understand being a SPAC, going public through a SPAC puts some black mark on you, especially after 2021, 2022. But it's funny, like it's seven years later, you know, it's a completely different company. And still people say, oh, they went public through a SPAC, but, but which, you know, the, yeah, it, it's a company that went public through a SPAC, probably lower quality, but it's also probably smaller. It's just funny how that that it's going to overhang over them for the next 50 years, you know, be 2052 and be like they, 2016, they went public through us. I think it's, I honestly think it's starting to change. I think more people are like, I think what they needed was just a change in management. I, um, I think three years should be the the due date for they went public first back where it's kind of, Hey, yeah. this is season. But and the other thing I was going to say I, is. I, I do think like, you know, there was, there were some big working capital swings in the business going into COVID coming out of COVID and they still had some big blowups they needed to work through um, on the, the general contractor side of the business. They're done working through them. 2022 was a clean cash flow year and a clean margin year. 2023 hopefully will be another one. I agree with you. If they can string together three years where margins are good and cash flow is good, I think they get a lot of credibility and people stop, stop talking about the SPAC days. The other thing I was going to say is like management in the board owned before that 2 million raise, they owned approaching 20% of the stock. And, you know, it seemed like a bad deal at the time. And in hindsight, it's probably proven to be a bad deal. The only way it probably would have been a good equity raise is if they had immediately had an acquisition to do, right? Where they say, hey, we're issuing stock at 6X to go buy an accretive acquisition at 4X and after some cost synergies, it's three and a half. Like, but that is not what happened. They they just went out and raised equity. And it's just funny, you're, you are probably right. They probably saw their stock up and to the right and said, hey, now's the time to do it. And COVID was a scary time. I, I, I get it. But you know, they own 17% of the company and they've probably cost themselves a, a decent chunk of change. You know, the stock's at 23 and they raise at 12. They cost themselves a decent chunk of change with a needless equity raise and just shows you even high insider ownership sometimes doesn't fully align you or, or with management or doesn't guarantee they're going to kind of do the, the smart decision, you know? Yeah, look, there might have been more uncertainty to the business at the start of 2021, right? Like no one knew what was going to happen with the economy at that point. Um, they did have some leverage. The business wasn't highly levered or anything. And they did have some known working capital unwinds because they did, you know, free bill of customers and get paid in 2020 to help their cash flow position. Yep. Um, but like if they would have flagged those things and said, we just want a little extra cushion because M&A pipeline's in good shape and just in case the economy slows and gone to their existing investor base, I think it would have been a little better received. Um, instead, the way they did it just was very poorly. I mean, you, you price something at a huge discount, you don't let your existing investors participate and there's no good use of proceeds where like you can explain to people why you're doing it. It was just like, it felt almost like they wanted to get more liquidity into more, more flow, more liquidity, some new blue chip. I call, it getting like, I call it getting compromised by a banker, right? A banker yes. comes and whispers in your ear and says, 
look, you rode the stock from two to 15. How smart will you look if you, you take a print at 12? Like you, your investors are going to love you for taking some chips off the table, getting some liquidity. You're the next Warren Buffett. You can take this cash and use it. Like, hey, yeah. I, also, I also, you're going to get some new, like high quality blue chip investors. Um, Every yeah. time a company tells me, hey, we had to do this primary offering because we had a high quality shareholder who wanted to get added to the race. Every time they say an angel loses its wings, it's insane. <laughs> I can't believe how many, like who believes that? You're, the high quality investor, if they really want to get in, instead of buying all primary at a discount, they can just go on the secondary. They can go on the stock exchange and buy it and push the shares up. You know, like why yeah. can't they do it that way if they really want to get in? Yeah. And listen, we have a net, we have a net cash balance sheet today which we, we might have had a little bit of net debt if we hadn't done that raise. But like, not only do we have a net cash balance sheet today, we also have 30 million of claims against general contractors from former projects gone bad that we've shown an ability to settle historically and, and get most of those claims. We have another 30 million of claims outstanding that hopefully settle over some period of time. Who knows, you know, the litigation process is, is inherently uncertain. That's another three bucks a share of additional net cash on top of the net cash we have today. Plus the business will be generating, you know, they've, they've, they've basically said 70% of EBITDA should convert to free cash flow, And so, you know, we're going to be generating, you know, 25, $30 million a year, free cash flow plus 30 million potentially in settlements of those claims. There's a lot of cash here to do attractive stuff. Even if, if you can't do a lot of M&A and the stock stays at these levels, I think you just buy back stock and you grow free cash flow per share that way. If the stock goes up and you can't do M&A, then maybe you, you sit on the cash and wait for a potential recession. I think there's just like lots of things you could do to create a lot of value here over time from this from this starting valuation. You don't need to do M&A from this starting valuation. You just need to not do dumb things. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. I, I have one more question I want to ask you, but before I get there, just on Limbat, is there anything about the story that we haven't discussed you think we should have discussed or that we kind of lost over that you think we should have hit harder? Um, they're getting added to the Russell 2000. That's going to create some buying demand over the next few weeks. There's some warrants that expire in July um, that came with the SPAC. Um, some are 1250 strikes, some are 15 strikes. So they're all in the money at this point. Those expire in July. There will probably be some cashless exercises and sales. One of the directors three or four days ago, cashless exercise, like yes. uh, 2 million of them or something. I think it was like 100,000 shares or something like yep. that. Um, and he, so he had a hundred thousand warrants, but he cashless exercised them. So only got 30,000 shares or something like that. Um, and um, I think, you know, the net buying from the index addition is, is going to more than soak up and more um, the, the potential the uh, from the warrants. Um, 
Yeah, other than that, no. no. Let me ask you my last question. And this is uh, a new question I've been meaning to ask the guests. So you're going to be my, my first guinea pig on it. But, uh, you know, everybody, I, I put out a quick blog post on this, but is there anything you're doing with AI to improve or change your process? Maybe I'm just like riding the bubble and hyping on the hop train, but I personally haven't like found out any like real use cases that I think improve it or anything, but I'm just asking anything you've tried or seen that kind of incorporated AI into your process? No, I mean, the only the only real uh, change in my process or, or update in thinking in my process related to AI is to try to avoid businesses that I think could be impacted over the medium term by AI. Whereas, you know, historically, I hadn't really given it as much thought. Now, now I, I certainly am. Um, I, I, I like owning businesses that I think have no secular issues uh, with good balance sheets because, you know, they're going to survive through downturns. They can deploy capital aggressively into downturns when valuations get cheap. And you know that long term, their value is there's, there's their ability to their enterprise value. I think Limbach checks all those boxes like, you know, buildings are going to need good HVAC systems, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So no secular issues. I think cyclically. Things are improving for their for their end markets right now, um, and they have a net cash balance sheet. So uh, I just think when you buy something at a low valuation, generates cash, clean balance sheet with no secular issues. I think the question in your mind should be like, what will my return be? Not will I make a return here? And, you know, I, I'm I uh, even at today's price up in the twenties, I still think. It, I wonder, like, am I going to double my money here? I'm going to make 50 percent of my money. If I'm going to triple my money, it's hard for me to to think like what what can really. Re- I mean, of course, every investment has risk. Like, things could go wrong. You could lose money if you buy this. So don't go out and buy this and, and reach out to me and say you promised me I wouldn't lose money. But I just I, I like these situations where I think the skew to the upside is so much higher than the skew to the downside. I, I think what you're saying it's a low multiple and they repair air conditioners and stuff. Like people are going to need air conditioners repaired. Maybe as you said, maybe it's a stealth AI play. They're going to need them repaired. Big buildings, no matter if our AI overlords take over the world or not. I you. I don't know if you still have it, but you used to have a position in Google. I'm guessing you still do. Have you thought about how AI, you don't have the position in Google anymore? I don't, no. No, and the question was more just uh, AI as it relates to investor. Because like my first thought with AI was I was going to be able to be like, here's my portfolio. Find me five stocks that have similar characteristics that I can (laughs) research and find new longs. Or like, here's a 10K. Tell me all the risk factors that like aren't in the risk factors or something. I, you know, I... The best I've heard is some people use, I think a lot of people are using AI as like an improved Google or a differentiated Google or something, but I haven't heard anyone using it in a way that as a like concentrated value, fundamental investor really improves or anything the process. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are definitely use cases. Um, if you run a really big fund with huge data feeds and you have- Oh, well, they've been, been doing that for years and I'm sure yeah, they get better yeah. and better at it. Uh, yeah. But that's different than what you and I do, right? We're ho- yeah. hopefully we're focusing on a couple of companies and doing well and finding interesting situations, not yeah, I think run a hundred, right. long, a hundred short. Anyway, uh, you're on, I, I'm starting to ramble. I, I've got the, the dust apocalypse out here. I'm sure you've got it too. It looks <laughs> like uh mad max outside, but I appreciate you coming on. Uh, congr- congratulations. I hope next week or the week after goes really well. And uh, I'm here for you if you need anything and we'll chat soon. All right. Thanks, man. Later, buddy. Later. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.